All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel, and kind of a special episode. I don't know how much you'll be able to see, but I'm actually sitting in the bow rack. And this isn't Eugene, right? This is Springfield? This is Springfield. This is yeah. one of the Springfields where the Simpsons could, like, there's, like, this isn't there is three it. or four? This you is think it. this is the yeah. one? Yeah, the guy grew up in Portland, and, uh, yeah, a lot of the street, a lot of the names of the characters are based in Portland, and or uh, streets in Portland, so... Okay, so this this must be the this, one. This is it. Yeah. So we are in Springfield, Oregon. I remember one time I was I was uh, on a road trip, and I was hanging out with these dudes at a hotel, and I said Oregon. Oh yeah. And they said it's Oregon. There's Not a gun in anywhere. my state. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. But we're here with Kellen from Inside Out Precision, um, who uh, anybody who listens to this podcast is going to know. Um, and he was gracious enough, gracious enough to come on the podcast. I hit him up and said, "I'm coming down to buy a bow. Why don't we do a podcast and and do some content?" And he was and he was into it. So, thanks for staying late tonight and making oh, the time. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's let's start at the beginning. When does hunting become a thing for you? Do you come from a hunting family? So, <laughs> yes and no. Uh, on my extended side of the family, absolutely. Okay. Um, so when I, we have a rice farm down in Marysville, California, uh, my mom's side of the family. Uh, when I was, I mean, well, every Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever, I'd be listening to my, my mom's brothers, my uncles talking about, you know, duck hunting and deer hunting and this and that. Um, you know, my dad grew up in Colorado, was never really into hunting. He had friends that hunted, but it wasn't something that, you know, he was like passionate about. Um, but I remember listening to those stories of, you know, when my uncles were, were talking and just being like, I, I got to do this. So it, it started with bird hunting. You know, I was nine years old, um, which is the legal age in California that you can, you know, go hunting with with uh, an adult. So started off bird hunting. Um, when I was 11, I went on my first deer hunt. Uh, and that, it was rifle hunting. Um, so went two years, shot deer, just poof, poof, back to back, like opening morning. Are these black tailors, I'm assuming? Uh, these are actually mule deer. So oh, okay. This the, yeah, this is on the east side of the state. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, <laughs> so so after that, there was a, there was a kid in, in eighth grade. Um, they had these things called brown bag speeches on the first day of class. And it's, it's like an older kid show and tell. So you'd bring a, like a brown grocery bag full of stuff okay. that like represented you, know, you and what you like to do. And this kid brought in... Uh, a broadhead and he's like yeah we like to my dad and i like to bow hunt that's and a dangerous thing to bring to show and tell i know i'd never like, fly that was not days. happening today <laughs> yeah. no 2022 like you're taking you're this razor out. blade to kid school <laughs> yeah. or to you're school out. kid yeah. yeah yeah you're out nowadays um but he was he was telling and i didn't even know at the time that like that was an option because you know i used to watch like tnn outdoors and just you know stuff like that and there was never any kids bow hunting it was always just you know adults and and so that kind of put the seed in my brain, like, oh, I didn't know you could actually, like, kids could do that. Um, and I, I was just talking about this the other day with a guy, but what really made me want to start was, A, I just, I thought bows were cool, but but B, you know, when we went rifle hunting, my dad would take me out of school for a week, and okay. then I'd shoot one opening morning, and then I'd have to go back to school two days later. Ah, and I was like, if, I was I use like, a if bow, I'm getting the week, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm taking the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so I actually came here where I now work at the bow rack. Um, I got set up with a Hoyt MT Sport, which I could barely pull. Like the lowest we could get, it was like 43 pounds. So how old were you then, and how old are you now? Uh, I was 13. I'm now 34. Okay. I was. So you've yeah, been coming in here for more than 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, you know, the owner, Wayne Endicott, um, 
you know, they, they really are like a second family to me. I mean, he yeah. was such an awesome mentor, which I think is really hard to find these days. Um, if definitely, if you just pick up a bow or a rifle or anything, and just decide you want to hunt. You know, if you don't know, sure, you can take your hunter safety course and all that. But if you if if you don't have somebody to kind of show you the ropes, it's it's a hard thing to just learn on your own. Uh, so he was super instrumental both in in my shooting development as well as as because that's what most people don't know. Like Wayne's a legitimate gangster when it comes to like his actual He's... archery prowess. Like oh, yeah. he was doing things with like a recurve and like yeah. competitions back in the day yeah. that was like crazy impressive yeah oh he's one i mean you know he's kind of like the unsung hero where he's not a big social media guy yeah but you talk to anybody in the industry you know whether it's guys at hunting fool or eastman's or you name it you say wayne and they're like oh yeah <laughs> i know wayne i mean he's he was second in the great outdoor games when espn used to do that he's won every tournament you can win in oregon and you know back from a little technical difficulty we were just talking about kind of wayne's actual archery pedigree and you were mentioning he was fairly instrumental in being one of your mentors when you oh, first yeah. came in here to grab a bow and yeah. and and since then obviously yeah i mean it, it, not just his his background in shooting but but hunting in general i mean he, he's one of those guys where it's more often than not when when he goes on a trip he doesn't come back empty-handed right you know he's, he's usually getting it done which you know when you consider the success for bow hunting nationwide is somewhere between nine and eleven percent you know, guys that get it done 70 to 80% of the time, like that's some top tier stuff. Well, and don't they say it's like 10% of the guys who are taking 80% of the animals or like whatever exactly. that yep. that rule is, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And then the, the other 80% of us are left yeah. with 20% of the animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but kind of going back to the history. So yeah, I came in here when I was 13, got my bow and I just, I just immediately immediately got obsessed with it it was yeah. one of those things where it was like you know from from the time i was 13 to 17 you know my mom would pick me up from school at three o'clock every day drive me straight here go run her errands grocery shopping whatever and i would just shoot for three hours straight and um just like right there yeah right on this range right here yeah. <laughs> yep you That's know I, awesome, I entered man. all the leagues we started going to 3d shoots um i got really into like the target archery thing for a long time yeah um which you know, some people kind of crap on target archery, which which I get, I get. It's it's not bow hunting, but it's a really good way to motivate yourself to shoot for the nine months a year where there's no season. Yep. You uh, know what else I think too, and this doesn't get talked about often enough. And Dan Staten, who we were actually just talking about a few minutes ago, high pressure stakes. Yeah. Like we're only in the red zone to use his terminology, maybe once or twice a season if you're lucky. Yeah. And then you don't get that sensation again for a whole other year. Yeah. But I think a league is a great way to like put that pressure on yourself so you can start practicing shooting under stressful conditions. Yeah. And, you know, especially when you get into a tournament setting. Yeah. You know, because just, just like anything, like you start shooting a league, maybe the first two leagues, you're a little bit nervous. But then you get used to the guys that are there and you get used to the targets that right, are there. Right, and pretty right. soon that's not nerve wracking. But then you go to Vegas and you got 700 guys on the line with you and you know if you miss 110 like pack it up yeah you're I mean you may as well at that point because like you're you know not gonna place uh, at least in like pro divisions um and so just like hunting like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable yes. in a pressure situation yes. and there is no secret answer for that other than going to tournaments yep and just putting yourself in that situation time and time again. And that applies to any facet in life, really. Yep. 100%. Um, 
And so, you know, I got really into to target archery, traveled all around the nation, you know, in the, in the youth and, uh, like young adult classes, which, you know, young adult, you shoot the same stakes as you do in the adult class. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I met a lot of, a lot of pros and back then, you know, we didn't have YouTube videos and, and all these things to learn. And I would, I remember when I was a kid, I would literally, I probably, probably pissed off a lot of pros cause I'd go with my little digital, like Sony camera and I'd take pictures of them when they were practicing and then I'd print them out and stick them on my mirror in my bathroom and then draw my bow in the bathroom. Maybe not every time with an arrow, like I should have, <laughs> but, but I'd draw my bow in the bathroom and I would just try to make, make myself look like the like, dude in the picture. And dude, so that's an amazing, I, I don't even think you probably realized what a good idea that was yeah. at the time. Like, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you just hang around enough and just kind of be the fly on the wall listening. And yeah. You can learn a lot. And archery is one of those sports that's awesome where, like, everybody that I've met in the sport, like, they want the sport to progress. Yeah. I mean, some It's some a small sport. world, too, man. Like, you'll, like, there's, I'm, I'm sure you were seeing, like, the the top of the top, like, when you go oh, in yeah. a tournament. Like, there, yeah. there's just, those guys are at, there's only so many. To, and the sport's not so big. It's not like the NBA right. or the NFL yeah. where you could go play a pickup game and you're not going to run into Kobe Bryant, obviously, but, right. you know, insert yeah. another sure. star here where I think archery is differently than that. Like oh, that. yeah, you're like shooting, you can go you're stand shooting on the, the line course. with the guys. You're shooting yeah. the same course as they are. Yeah. Um, and... Like I said, especially especially when you're younger, you know, when you're 14, 15, 16, like those guys know that the future of the sport depends on right. on people getting into it yeah. <laughs> and coming up. Um, and so, you know, Redding in particular, um, you know, if you've never been to an awesome shoot, I'd recommend going to Redding. It's just, okay. it's a great venue. It's, you know, the, there's vendors, there's great food. There's, it's, it's just a really well set up course. Um, and all the big names are always there. Um, and, they have a they used to have they might still do it but it's like a shoot with the pros thing the day before the tournament okay and, um i got i remember i got stuck on a target well stuck i said I, I was lucky enough to get placed on a target with uh dave cousins who if you're i mean he's won everything there is to win um you know he was real big in like the late 90s early 2000s he's still crushing i mean he was like third at lancaster this year did great uh and rio wild who same thing i mean at the time like Rio was the guy to beat. Right. Um, and if I asked a question, they would answer, you know? Yeah. And if, if they saw something that wasn't quite right, they would, I, I think too, at that to age, you're not competition. Else. Like it would be different right. if you were right up there with them. Right. Then there's like kind of the head games and stuff going on, yeah. but you're just an up and comer kid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, I kept doing that for a long time. You know, I did, I did well at some national tournaments, got, yeah, well, as much recognition as you could get as being a fifth, 16 year old doing archery um and ended up getting you know uh a slot admissions to go to college for it um back at james madison university and you can uh, get picked up to for art at the these time are like these guys that go to college for golf and stuff right? that I, like it just blows yeah. my mind i know i i didn't even know it was a thing so i had a, <laughs> I had a counselor um you know college counselor doing all these admissions and whatnot and uh she goes do you have any extracurriculars and i told her about about archery and she's like oh like, all right, I'll get back to you. And she's like, okay, there's this school. So Texas A&M was a big one. That's uh, a big school too. Yeah, giant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Texas A&M and JMU were kind of the two, like, most well-known ones. Um, and, you know, JMU, like, I love Eugene now, 
honestly, I could not wait to get out of here. Of course, like man. Six years of old. course. So JMU was like 3,000 miles away. It was like, oh, that's as far away as I can get. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, I wrote the coach a letter. He goes, oh, yeah, actually, one of our teammates, Braden, um, who I didn't even know went to JMU, uh, Braden Gallanthine. I don't know if you if you follow Target Archer at all. Target Archery at all. He's still top, top, top tier. Um, he just won NFA Indoor Nationals or USA Archery Indoor Nationals like two weeks ago. Um, and he was there. And I had actually shot with him at Vegas uh, probably like a year or two before we were on the same target. And uh, so he goes, oh, yeah, actually, Braden's heard of you, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you come out and visit? Um, so I ended up going back to school there. Um, and at the time, it was an NCAA sport, um, like sanctioned, you know, full meal deal, which was really cool. And then um, halfway through my sophomore year, um, Title IX, which I don't know if you're familiar no. with Title IX. So Title IX in uh, collegiate sports is the equal allocation of scholarship money given to men's and women's sports. Okay. Um, obviously, there's no women's football team, and football has like 55 full-ride scholarships. So there's a, there was a big gap between the amount of money given okay. uh, to men's scholarships and women's scholarships. So what they decided, when I say they, the NCAA, what they decided was best was to just cut, <laughs> like, five sports uh, oh. in total. So it was, like, archery, wrestling, cross-country, swimming, and gymnastics. They just wiped. Um, oh. Yeah. So, and they, they were telling this – they had a guy come in. He's given us this whole spiel about how good of a thing it is. Which I mean, I'm you know I'm not opposed to, sure, to the, the concept of it. Yeah, the execution was rather poor. Yeah, because um, they're telling us that you know oh there's just not enough money in women's sports. We don't have the money because we give it all to the guys as they're stalling, installing like a six million dollar jumbotron in the football stadium. It's like can we cut that thing in half and maybe <laughs> give the other three million to, to women's sports? Um, but long story short, I. You know, I stayed there for another, <clears throat> well, to the end of my sophomore year, uh, and then I, I came back home and, and finished out here. But long, you know, like I said, what did you study? Short, <clears throat> I was a political science major. Okay. Yeah. So super useful. Done absolutely <laughs> nothing with. It. I have a, I have a degree majoring in psychology and minoring yeah. in English literature. So yeah. equally, <laughs> yeah. equally useful. Yeah. It makes for a good conversationalist. That's about yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but. Archery has taken me a lot of cool places. Is the yeah. Point. You know, I've got to experience a lot of cool things, meet a lot of cool people. And um, I'm just, it's one of those itches I just can't scratch enough. And I, I think part of that is it's just, it's a competition with yourself. There's, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's it's not a basketball team. Like, I mean, you could go, you know, 20 for 20 on three-pointers in basketball and still lose the game because your teammates didn't do anything. Yeah. And archery, you know, it's, it's you. <laughs> you. I love that you about it. And win, there's something lose. different... I, I listen. There is a deep dive to go into uh, rifle shooting, and I don't want to like piss anybody off when I say this, but it's like if you're shooting under 500 yards, just about like I could go home and take a rifle right now. I could drive to the range. I could set it up first shot. I could hit a four inch gong at 500. I could put it back in the truck and I could go home. Yeah, and it's kind of like I haven't shot in the last few months, be, like regularly because it's been winter and it's kind of my off season. Sure. I'm doing some other stuff. If I went to try and go you know, shoot a group at 60 right now, it would be ugly. Like sure. it's this perishable skill. And I felt like with archery, it's just one of those things. Like, I feel like I'm never going to master. Like it just feels so much more intricate yeah. to me. And I've also said to people, let's just say hunting becomes illegal tomorrow. 
I would probably never shoot another gun for the rest of my life. Yeah. But you still I, shoot a bow. I would still shoot a bow. <laughs> yeah. Because I like, I don't know, guns, they're violent. And, and I'm into it. Like, it's still cool. Don't get me wrong. But there's like a meditative component oh, about 100%. shooting a bow. 100%. And it's like, it's just, it doesn't really, there's no, I, I haven't had any other disciplines quite like that in it my life. It commands your full attention. Yeah. You got it. Exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. Like you can't do it. You can't think half-assed. about anything else. No. No. It commands your full attention. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm kind of quoting my, you know, Wayne here when I say this, but, you know, he always says, like, it's, it's literally in your DNA. It's as old as modern mankind. You know, you think, isn't that before, crazy? Cause there's it feels like home. Yeah. Like the first time I pulled There's back a, familiar a bow, feeling I was it. like, yeah, okay, it feels a little awkward just because, you yeah. know, it's a comp, but I'm like, this feels natural. Like yeah. it feels normal to me to do this. 100%. And I mean, it, it, it makes sense because modern man, you know, before gunpowder was invented, like we warred with bows, we yep. hunted with bows. You know, it, some, you see some of these, these bows and there's not a lot left that were from, you know, like the Pleiades era or whatever. There's a few that they found, but like, the craftsmanship yeah. was amazing because people realized that the better you can make them, the better you're going to shoot them. Yeah. And, you know, it was really people's lifeline for a really long time. And so, you know, there, and, and that's something that I, at the time I didn't realize it when I was younger, but looking back on it, it's like, there was just this familiar feeling and, and I do a lot of coaching and I, I see it when, you know, somebody's never shot a boat, you take them out to the range you, know, you explain the steps, you start working with them, blah, blah, blah. The average person is probably, you know, 30 to 40 shots in. All of a sudden, everything aligns, like their anchor's good, they see through the peep, their grip is good, that pin settles. They get that first arrow, and it's like, ding, light yeah. bulb goes off. It's like they, it just has to take, it's that one or two good arrows in a row, and all of a sudden, like, you go from, you know, looking like a complete noob to like the learning curve is so steep with it. Right. You know, um, and as soon as I get it, I've, you know, I do all ages, but especially with kids, like I have yet to coach a kid who, when the lesson is done, it's like, eh, I don't really want to do that again. Right. They're always like, can we come back? Yeah. I want a bow, <laughs> you know? Um, it's just, it's just one of those things. It's just a fun thing. And it's, it's also a great avenue for for people who are competitive, but maybe not necessarily athletically inclined, hundred <laughs> percent. If that man. makes sense, yeah. Um, you know, like I coached this girl Maya Reddy for for a long time. She ended up being on the junior national team, um, and she was great at a lot of things she did. Um, but she was not going to be on the basketball team. You know, she was right. five foot nothing on her best day. Um, but she conceptualized things really really well she's a smart girl she understood you know that it it you had to take the technical side of things combined with just hard work and and time behind the string and uh she had that competitive nature like she she wanted to win and it was the perfect avenue for her because it was like well i can go out and you know a you're competing against yourself like you're always trying to better be better than you were the day before with it. Yeah. And if you are, you get to beat all these other people. <laughs> and, and, uh, it was, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's, it's in its own category in terms of, of athletics, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't call it an athletic sport necessarily. Um, but it, it definitely requires a lot of the same discipline that every other sport takes. Yep. You know, you don't have to jump through the roof to do it, but 
you know, you got to put in the work and you got to put in the time and you got to understand fundamentals and discipline. So it's, yeah. yeah. No, it definitely, it definitely has its, has its own space. There was something about it when I found it that I was like, oh yeah, this has been missing for me. Like yeah. I needed this and it, and I love how you can make it as complicated as you want. Like I know people who don't really know that much. As long as they got a bow shop, they trust. They just they just yeah. pick up their bow and they shoot their bow. And then there's guys like me who like love. Like I got a bow press at home, and I like I love tinkering. And there's like that rabbit hole can be as deep or as shallow as you want it to be. And if you just want to go out and shoot and have some fun, you can do that. If you want to get super geeky about it, you can do that too. Hundred percent. Yeah, um, it's definitely definitely a tinkering man sport if you choose to do so. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes tinkering gets you in more trouble than it does good if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's kind of the whole fun of it. It's yes. like you learn along the way. And what works for you may not work for your buddy. And what works for your buddy may not work for you. Um, but there, so I say this all the time, but like there's no exact science to archery. Like, I mean, even, you know, the same brand, the same bow is going to react differently in other people's hands. Right. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, with the Matthews V3 X33, you set the shims, you know, 64th to the left and call it good because your hand is different than mine. Your anchor is different than mine. The amount of back tension you put in the back wall is different than mine. You know, we got five guys at this shop. We can all grab the same bow and shoot different holes through paper. Right. Um, and I think that's what's really cool about it is it's a very intimate relationship with your weapon. Whereas, you know, rifles are great. Love rifles. I suck with them. I missed a, he said, I can take a rifle out and, you know, gong it at 500 yards. I missed a bear at 516 last year because I zeroed it at 300 with a seven mag and I had no idea how high to aim. Right. <laughs> I just put it right above his back and shot and hit like 18 inches under, under him. Um, but generally speaking with a rifle, you know, if it's a well set up rifle, you can put that thing on a rest, put a guy who's hardly ever shot a gun behind it and say, just squeeze the trigger slow and boom. That's a hit. With a bow, not the case. No. You know, it's a very personal weapon. (laughs) I agree. And it was funny, too. So, you know, the bow shops are not great where I live. There's a couple, there's like one kind of recurvy shop and there's one kind of targety shop. But like nobody focuses on, on hunting. So I would keep taking my bow in to get tuned and I would keep getting it back and I couldn't get... You know, for the first two years, I had to shoot mechanicals because I couldn't figure out how to get. And we're talking like a four-inch gap at 30 between where my field points and my fixed blades. And I couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't figure it out. And then finally, I just got frustrated. And I'm like, I'm sick of relying on everybody else. I bought my own bow press. And I will say, the actual, my ability as a shooter noticeably increased when I started getting that like fundamental understanding of how, how everything was work. working. Like yeah. I, and it's so weird because you almost, it doesn't really make sense, yeah. but, but you talked about that intimate connection with your bow. Once I'd had it on a press and I timed it myself and I'd put the twists in the cables myself yeah. and I understood what, you know, I had a real breakthrough moment watching a Tim Gillingham video on yoke tuning and I have a Ho- mm-hmm. Hoyt Pro Defiant 34 that I could not get a bullet hole out of for probably the first three years I owned. Trying to move the rest. Yeah, because yeah. and then I'm like, now I can't shoot the arrow because I'm, right. I'm moving the rest so far over yeah. Yeah. and nobody had ever even said the word yoke tuning. Right. And then I watched this Tim Gillingham video and I put two, and I finally have my own bow press 
Yep. I put two twists in the one side and I'm like, Ding. like I'm freaking out. Like <laughs> I'm running around my yeah. house. Like I can't effing believe yeah. I'm shooting a bullet hole. Like, Cause I thought it was, I literally thought like my riser was warped. Like I was right. like phoning Hoyt. I'm like, what's supposed to match up with your what? all like, messed up, man. Yeah. There's, it's, there's <laughs> some voodoo. Have you ever made a bow? Yeah. Hoyt. <laughs> I was Kill just me. like, I was going crazy. Yeah. But then, once you do, then you now you feel like it's an extension of yourself, right? And I understood it so deeply, yeah. And I and it could just be weird voodoo because maybe at that point you just have like a confidence that changes your skill, or maybe that little bit of a better tune maybe does. Sh- I don't know, but there was definitely a noticeable difference yeah. in how well I shot before and after right. learning how to do that to my. And I don't know if everybody needs to go through that, but I know for my type of learning, I definitely did. Well, tuning. Tuning a bow in general is extremely important. Um, I'm, you know, with our YouTube channel, I'm shocked at how many messages I get where they're like, well, they took it in the back room and they said they paper tuned it. Yeah. Like it should be good. And I'm like, dude, that's not you yeah. shooting well, my, the bow. My shop told me there's like, no need. Right. And, and that's an 80 say, pound oh, bow. And I got home have, and it was 72 pounds. Yeah. And I was just they like, go, oh, you have Camling. We got to fix that. It's like, no, no, that's how you tune the bow. Yeah. Like that's. <laughs> I don't care what it looks like at rest. I care about how it casts the string yeah. during the shot. It's going to do the same thing every time. You know, the, the machining on these bows is incredible. Right. Um, I mean, you know, we're talking like half a thousandth of an inch tolerances or less on right. a lot of these things. So right. it's going to do the same thing time and time again. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, my shop said, you know, Matthews, like they tune them at the shop. It's like, how would Matthews know what arrow you're shooting? Yeah. What draw length you're shooting? What draw weight you're shooting? All those things factor into how that bow is going to cast that arrow. And at the end of the day, you want the most forgiveness out of your equipment. And a lot of people, I think, confuse the term forgiveness with uh, accuracy. They think like a forgiving bow is just accurate. Forgiveness comes down to if you don't do everything you're supposed to do, your equipment will absorb some of that and your miss will not be right. as bad, um, especially with arrows. You know, This I, is why I shoot four-fletch instead of three-fletch. Sure. Because I need a little bit more sure. drag back there stabilize, to kind of stabilize help that thing me out quick. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and arrows, I think, are, are overrated a lot. I mean, people go, you know, we go through pages and pages of, of <laughs> comments about you know spine and this and that and the other and, and spine really is an important thing um some people have the the mindset like there's no such thing as too stiff of an arrow right well if that was the case there wouldn't be different spines right they would just be a straight rod of metal that had no flex at all um, an arrow needs to be able to flex and react off that rest to a certain point if it's too stiff it's going to put downward pressure on the rest and then it's going to kick off right if it's too weak, it's going to come off, and it's going to take so long to recover. Because if you ever watch an arrow come out of a bow, it's not just a straight line. It flexes. Right. And then about eight, nine feet off the bow, it straightens out. Well, if it takes 18, 19, 20 feet to correct, the point of that arrow is going all over the place. And with a broadhead, especially a fixed blade, that whole time, that that blade is catching wind, wanting to play in different directions. So you just get these insane groups. Um, so... <laughs> like Wayne always jokes, like we get these calls, especially it never fails. It's on a Saturday and we're absolutely slammed and somebody wants to talk about the mystical flight of the arrow. <laughs> 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 and you know, it's 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 a hard conversation to have in 
two minutes. Right. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of time. Um, but you know, when we started the channel, that's kind of some of the stuff that I wanted to get out there was like, here's what you're looking for. Here's, here's a sign that you're too weak. Here's a sign that you're a little too stiff. Yeah. You know, if, if you can determine one or the other, then here's what you do to fix it. Um, because I don't think there's a lot of that information out there. There's, there's more and more these days. Um, I think what you knock out of the park on your channel though, is the combination of technical archery info from a hunting perspective and then delivering it in a way that's complicated enough that you're not dumbing stuff down where you're losing the like the essence of what you're trying to teach. But there's a couple other channels that get they go so technical yeah. that it's kind of like, well, now you've lost me because I, yeah. like you've gone too far. And I think you cut the middle of the road on both those issues like really well for like uh, like my type of guy. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, the there's a lot of stuff that goes in to to tuning. I mean, there there are so many different ways that you can tune a bow or, or processes to tune a bow. Um, and it's it's I do the best I can to answer questions online, but it's so hard to diagnose an issue without watching the person shoot. And yeah. even on video, like I do a lot of video lessons online and stuff. Um, but you know, I, I can't see everything from yeah. one camera angle. Like I need to be able to be there and walk around you from different angles and watch how that bow reacts after the shot and, you know, shoot through paper and do all these things. And I think sometimes people get, you know, you can only buy accuracy to a certain point, right? right. Like, sure. Your good equipment is always going to help. Um, but really time behind the string is, is what's going to improve your shooting and form form in my opinion, conquers all, you know, okay. Levi Morgan's going to be able to take a $300 bow from Cabela's and outshoot 95% of the people in the nation that have a $2,000 Hoyt. Right. Because he is so consistent shot to shot. Um, and you know, I get these messages where people are like, Oh, my bear shaft is an inch left of my fletch shaft at 40 yards. And I'm like, Call it good, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Are you a good enough shooter to, to know that you yeah. weren't just holding an inch left when the shot broke? Like, and that's what I mean. Where like, if I can't watch you shoot, I don't know if it's. Sometimes it's hard to tell if it's the bow or or the person. Yeah. Um. You know, even like consistency is everything with archery, right? So even if you're not, even if you don't have the quote perfect form, um, which I'm I don't even know what that would be, but. Even if you don't have the perfect form, as long as it's the same every single time, right? The bow is going to cast the arrow the same. Um, you know, I remember Terry Ragsdale, who was a really prominent target shooter back in like the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, he won Vegas, and um, people asked, you know, it was an NFAA magazine, and people were like, "Well, you know, I like, how do you tune your bow? What do you tune?" And he's like, "Uh, I just." kind of set it up and shot it till it shot well. And he's like, I shot it through paper. It was like an inch and a half high left. But at 20 yards, like, it's the same distance every time. So that arrow's kicking the exact same way right. every single time. Now, if he was shooting from 20 to 70 yards, he'd probably have some issues. Yeah. But he was just so consistent with his form and the way he shot that, you know, it worked for him. Yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say just, you know. I think the essence of what you're, because my gear reviews and kind of stuff tends to focus on going into the backcountry and like uh, like gear that you need to do that. And people do the same thing in that realm. 
Like sure. they will stress over like a pair of boots or like a tent, and it's like, bro, it yeah. doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a good pair of boots. Sure. Are they Hanvogs? Are they? Um, uh, well, now my brain is just completely shitting the bed. Are they La Sportivas? Are they like? There's I could name a half a dozen brands. Crispies, hundred percent. Like. Yeah. Are they more than 300 bucks? You're probably fine. Yeah, in terms of the quality of the yeah, like Yeah, because once you get yeah. up to a certain point, it doesn't, and the same thing with tents, like, oh, should I get this or that? Or And right. it's like- Is it lightweight? I, Is it waterproof? Yeah, <laughs> and I always try and tell people, it's not your boots yeah. or your tent that's going to send your home, it's your mind. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing in archery. Like, I loved your example about the, the inch left thing. I think there's like a, a shelf that we should worry about getting our gear to. Yeah. But then I think we're almost hiding in the technicality of it. Right. Like, because it's safe and comfortable and and it gives us an out. Like, if I'm just blaming everything on some weird glitch in my in my gear, then I don't have to take responsibility. And I think there's something about the... It's why I think everybody focuses on fitness. And I'm the last guy to talk about it. I am obsessed. But I think there's a safety in that when it's like you'd probably be better off just getting more scouting in during the summer if you're sure. actually looking at Which how will to, add to improve. Your yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you actually want to improve as a hunter, you spend more time hunting. Right and so. if you want to improve as an archer, you spend more time yeah. shooting a bow. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, so people see, the, you know, YouTube videos and they watch competition archer, archery media and the ASAs and all that. And, they, you know, they see these pros posting pictures of these targets um, where I I feel like people think that they shoot as much as a pro does. Right. I know pros. They shoot a, a slow day for them is 150 arrows. Right. I mean, they are shooting so many arrows a week. And it's just like, like you were talking about fitness. fitness. It's like anything else. You know, if you run one or two miles a week... It's going to be really hard to run a marathon. Yeah. If you run 12, 15 miles a week, it's going to be a lot easier. You run 20, 30 miles a week. We're in the hometown of campaigns right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A marathon is, that's lunch. That's lunch for that guy. (laughs) Yeah. What a savage, man. Yeah, he's a beast. Yeah. Insane. And it's the same with archery. And it's it's actually shocking. So um, archery archery induces all these little stabilizer muscles uh, and, and tendons and ligaments that don't really get worked just being in the gym. Right. Well, obviously, being strong helps, but archery is not an explosive. I found it actually hurt me a little bit, I think, yeah. because I have like some major muscle groups that are overdeveloped because sure. I'd done like more like bodybuilding bro split type stuff most mm-hmm. of my life. And when I went into archery, I think I think I actually ended up getting some shoulder issues because I was uh, unconsciously compensating with some yeah. of the larger muscle groups where some of my smaller stabilizers should have been doing some more of that work. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's, I mean, sounds silly, yoga. Yeah. I mean, yoga is one of those things where it's like you have to hold a position and try to hold it steady as you can. And that's really what archery is. I mean, it's, you know, it's being able to hold a bow because to a certain point, I don't care what sight you have, what stabilizer you have, whatever. If the pin's not in the middle when the shot breaks, you're not hitting the middle. If, if you can only shoot as well as you can aim to a certain extent. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I always preach execution over a steady aim because you see people that over aim. They spend, you know, 15, 20 seconds trying to get that pin in the middle and then they start breaking down and they just punch it. Yeah. 
you know, I would much rather have a pin that's floating from edge to edge of the yellow. And as I'm, you know, if I'm working it from right to left and the shot breaks, well, my follow through is going to help give that arrow direction to the left. So I'll always preach that. But, you know, if you can get that pin to settle down from edge of X to the other edge of the X instead of edge of the white to the other edge of the white, yeah, you're going to be more accurate. Yeah. And there is no substitute. I mean, resistance bands are good. Um, you know, any sort of body weight exercises where you're holding yourself in a position that's tough is good, but really time behind the string is the best for that. And it's shocking. I mean, I've had a couple injuries the last year where I had to take, you know, three, four weeks off of shooting. When I get back into it, it's like I got maybe 10 good arrows. And 100%. That is like, <laughs> isn't that? I was exactly like, what I was thinking when you were. I was crazy. like, anytime I come back from a break, and I, I'm probably even good for less. Yeah. I'll be good for the first three to four. Do you know what I mean? Like steady, 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 and then it's gone. Yep. And so we recently moved a house where I have a garage and I can only shoot like seven or eight yards. But the one nice thing is at least I can build my endurance, my archery endurance back up. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Because I don't care how far I am. If I'm pulling 20 or 30 shots in a row and I do that five to six nights a week, like one of the breakthroughs I had when it came to training protocols, and this may be just for me, I found it far more successful to have more shorter sessions. Yes. Like I'd rather practice twice a day for 10 to 15 minutes each yep. than once a day for even if it was 40 minutes. Yep. Like I'm, my body responds way better with these shorter like bursts, you know. 15, 20 arrows in the morning, 15, 20 arrows at night is almost I ideal for me. Consistency is so much better right. than, than, you know. Oh, the guy who goes out on Saturday for three hours arrows. and brings out the lawn yeah. chair and takes big, long right. breaks, and I see that at my home archery range all the yeah. time. Yep. Uh, I, you know, we as a shop, like, we always say when people are asking, you know, especially newer shooters, they're like, right. hey, what, what should my practice regimen be? It's like, if you can get 20 arrows a day, yeah, just 20 good arrows yeah. make each one like it's your only shot and take 20 good shots you will be so much better than picking up your bow on you know wednesday and shooting 100 and then you know next thursday you shoot 200 um just that consistency just just going back to the working out thing it's the same thing consistency yeah. is key with any sort of physical fitness or anything that you're trying to excel at like because you know so much of archery is muscle memory and 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 this conscious loop um you know joel turner i don't know if you know who joel turner i know joel is. well i spent yeah. some time at his house he's yeah. a good friend yeah yeah um you know he he preaches that whole thing yeah well, you have to consciously practice something to commit it to the subconscious how about his kid eh oh my gosh Bodie, dude what a freak dude what a freak wow yeah it's in so i've seen him shoot a couple times that's like what happens when you get raised by the jedi master man oh my god and it, it is i mean you could set your watch by yeah his, you want to talk about consistency shot timing exactly yeah. consistency i mean it is from the time he draws to the time the release clicks to the time the shot breaks is probably within three quarters of a second every time right i mean it is and if it's not he lets down and restarts really because he knows that that and that's his rhythm i think you know obviously you're not going to do it in hunting but with with target archery in, in practice um there's those shots where you draw your bow back and you you know it's just not good. 100%. Something just doesn't feel right. Your yeah. pin's low. You can't yeah. get it up. Rather than just forcing that shot and ingraining yeah. bad habits, just let down. I took that. Start that was such again. a big thing I got from Joel because it's yeah. like you're, every bad shot you take is an imprint. 
and you're you're giving yourself kind of permission or you're undoing the work of the good imprints with every yep. bad yep. imprint. Yeah. That was another big learn for him thing I took away from him is I shortened all my ends. Like when I first start getting back into things, I'll only shoot three arrows at a time. Yeah. Because when I start when I'm when I arrows. don't have my yeah, and yeah. it and, and and they have to be perfect. Yeah. And then because I was finding before I get my endurance out, by the time I get to four, five, and six, I'm already starting to kind of fall apart. Mm. And but that walk, because I normally shoot 40, that 40 yard walk there and back after the three, shoulder kind of blood comes out of the shoulder, yep. everything kind of relaxes, and I'm good for and so the imprint I'm building is yeah. that like perfect arrow every time. Yeah. And you know, I know like Joel's down here at the elk sha- uh, elk shape camp. Yeah. I know he travels with Dan and uh you know his his kind of theory and mantra on de- developing your shot routine like knowing how that shot is going to go before you ever make the shot is really important um if you i don't mean to get so much stuck on target archery but a lot of a lot of like the hunting industry and and technology in the hunting industry is driven from target archery because there's guys literally making a living being accurate and winning um and when you hear, you listen to interviews from guys that have won a lot of times, 95% of them say, yeah, I ran my mental program perfectly today. Right. All those guys at their home range are going to shoot good scores. Yeah. It's it's not, you know, I, I'm not going to say one is better than the other, but going back to what we were talking about earlier in that red zone, there are guys that perform much higher in that zone. Right. And that translates directly into hunting, like knowing knowing and being able to focus on the task at hand when that shot opportunity presents itself because you get one in hunting you don't have three other arrows to make up for a bad shot um that is so so valuable um and you know i think a lot of people get up to the line and they just load an arrow and draw back and just sling it and they don't think about each step leading up to that and sure it's kind of boring but you know like with with maya when she started i remember you know, writing out like things that she needed to work on and taping it right underneath, right underneath her feet. So when she would load an arrow every single time, she would see it. Right. Now, whether she read every step after the first two weeks, I don't know, but just seeing it every single that time, that cue alone, it brings that subconscious, yep, hundred percent cue into it. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of people that that want to shoot a hinge um, when they first try it, it's like, oh, this is the cure, yeah, because they're not used to it. Yeah, and then after two weeks. They learn how to just rip the hinge off. Yeah. Um, and so developing something where, you know, like for me, like when I shoot my hinge, I've practiced it. I, like Joel preaches, you know, I've always had this thing in my head where it's like, I say squeeze one, squeeze two, squeeze three. And I'm not trying to get the shot to fire on a certain number. Right. My goal is every time I get to the next number or the next squeeze in my brain, that release has moved. It right. helps me keep that release rolling because so many people just get it and they just pull, yeah. but their hand is so tense that it can't rotate. So then they just sit there and now it's 10 seconds and it's like, just get rid of it. Yeah. And they just rip it, which is the worst shot in archery. Like a force shot with a hinge is the least accurate shot there is. Yeah. You know, if you're going to force it, just use an index and just punch the hell out of it. Cause you know, at least you can still kind of hit what you're aiming at. Um, but practicing that, with that mantra, eventually what happens is when your pin hits the center, your subconscious kicks in because it goes, oh, I know what's coming. Roll one, roll two, roll three. 
So as soon as your pin hits the center, your hand just starts moving. And pretty soon it's like you basically your pin hits and you just kind of wait and the shot goes off. But it takes hundreds, if not thousands of arrows, probably thousands. Yeah. To get to that point where it's committed to your subconscious and muscle memory. See, and you know what I so I do I I practice with a hint and be, this is all Joe Joel. Like I went down there with an index and he, he's like he he put me on the hinge almost four years ago. I practice with a hinge, I hunt with a hinge, I do everything with a hinge. And it's got to the point now, unlike those perfect shots, it's almost like once I once I decide, like once I see that pin, you know, I'm an aim small, miss small guy, I've got like my couple little hairs or the little shading at the V of the shoulder, wherever I'm looking at, it's not even conscious anymore when I'm hunting. Like when right. it's perfect and yeah. you remember those perfect ones, it's like as soon as I see it and I decide... There's just this, and then it just it just yeah, it like, just breaks. It'd be really cool if the arrow went, Dunk! It, and then there it is. Yeah, because people Gone. are always like, "Well, what if you yeah. need to punch it because of wind?" And I'm always like, "Well, a because your brain is so slow, you've already fucked up, and you shouldn't have taken the shot if if you think you should be punching yeah. it." And then I try to explain. It's like as soon as my brain decides this is the perfect time for this arrow to go, yeah. the arrow goes. Go. Like I'm almost better. In hunting situations, because we were talking about presence earlier, I feel like I'm so present, right. I'm not playing any of those anticipation mind games sure. like I am when I'm at the range. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting thing you highlighted, especially when you're dealing with some type of tension-based release, or even trying to use back tension with a thumb or an index. Time is almost your enemy, because the longer that thing doesn't go off, the more your internal tension and anticipation kind of rises, yep. and then the more pressure and the more torque, and you can feel the shot yeah. just start falling oh, yeah. apart. That on little you. voice in your head goes, "Oh shit!" Yeah, go, 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 go. Yeah, and then wham. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then I'll notice I can't line up. I'm moving. I'm, I'm losing my framing. Come out of your people. My a little people bit. come out a bit, and yep. I can't line up. And then I'm focused on that. And then my anchor feels weird. And it's like, those are the ones I wish I could say I'd let down every time. I don't. Right. But those are the ones where I think we would be really But as soon as you do it, you know it wasn't right. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that, and that, you know, being able to diagnose your shot, again, comes back to time behind the string. Right. Like, I, there are certain misses. When I miss, it's, you know, I have two spots I miss. I miss low right, and I miss straight high. Straight high, well, I shouldn't say those are the only spots I miss. I, <laughs> I can miss other places. But usually, like, if, if I'm if I'm high, it's usually because that shot's taking a minute to break, and I, I come out of that back wall. I don't come out of the back wall. I take pressure off of the back wall unknowingly. Just even though my effort is the same, because my muscles are fatiguing, that pressure is lessening on the back wall. And you'd think it'd be the opposite. You'd think if you, you know, put less pressure, you'd shoot high, but it's up or shoot low, but it's opposite. You usually shoot out the top. Um, when I, you know, when I miss low, right, it's because I'm usually pulling harder than I'm pushing. Um, and for whatever reason with my follow through, if I'm, if I'm just cranking on that thing, you know, on my follow through, my arm goes, goes low, right. So what are your feelings on on let off then? Do you prefer a little less let off so that you you do have a little bit of fight there to like keep you active and in that? Yeah, so that's 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 an interesting one. It it really depends on the draw weight that I'm shooting. Okay. Like on my V3X, I'm at 78 pounds. So okay. 85%, I achieve pretty much the same holding weight that I have at like 75% with a 60 pound let off okay. or 60 pound bow. Um, but 
I do think let off is important to keep you honest. Right. Um, that's why you don't see target bows with 85, 90% let off. Right. Because you want it to tell you if you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Because in target archery, you have the option to let down. Yeah. Now, for a hunting bow, if I need to stay at full draw for a minute waiting for something to step out, I don't want 65 or 70% let off. No. You know, the, the accuracy the accuracy increase from low to high let off is not so great that I'm willing to sacrifice the ability to hold my bow at full draw. No, that makes a ton of sense. Um, but, you know, most, if I'm 70, 70 or under, um, like with my hunting bow, you know, the last, I, this is the first year I've shot 78 pounds. I usually shoot 70, 72. Okay. Um, and I've preferred the 80% let off. Not so much because, I mean, I like the holding weight, but it's more the way it comes into the back wall. Um, with 85, at least on the Matthews, like it's a smooth draw until it comes into the valley and then it just dumps. Okay. And it's just this like clunk into it or the 80, it's just this nice kind of smooth. It's like, okay, let off. And it just kind of rolls into the back wall. Um, and I do like that extra holding weight. It, it seems counterintuitive, but like you don't have to work as hard if you have more resisting you. Like right. I don't have, I don't have to physically put that extra weight into the back wall. Um, so I'm not straining my muscles as much, which I know that doesn't, it doesn't sound like it makes sense. Um, but for me, it feels like I can almost relax my arms more and feel my back muscles more engaged with lower let off. Whereas with higher let off, I feel like I, I have to like force that holding weight that I want. Okay. Um, so, but it's such a personal feel, man. It's, right. you know, and that's the thing with archery is like, just because I like that doesn't mean that I'm going to tell everybody else to go do that. Right. Um, and I think the more you shoot, the more you will like lower let off. Um, if you're a guy that picks up your bow a month before season and shoots 200 arrows before you go hunting, you're probably going to like higher let off. Right. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a personal preference thing. You know, some guys say, oh, well, I want the extra speed. It's like, dude, you're talking three feet a second. Like that's, I mean, yeah. that's nothing. And the speed game is something that all bows are fast these days. Like I remember when I first started, like Matthews had just come out with the the Ultra 2 and it was the fastest bow on the market it was 320 feet a second <laughs> like and that was 2002 that's not even that long ago yeah. well I guess it is 20 years ago but um, you know nowadays it's like I got a, a mission switch over there that's 315 right <laughs> you know and it's like the easiest shooting bow there is so all all bows are fast enough to kill these days um you know, sure, speed will gain you a little bit of forgiveness if you're misjudging yardage or something like that. But at the end of the day, accuracy is what kills. Right. You know, so, you know, I I, I don't ever buy a bow or shoot a bow based on its the speed rating. You know, it's like the shootability of it is, is what I really look for. And I'm, I'm not a brand loyal guy. I shoot my PSE tonight, my EVL 34. I love it. I have a V3X 33. I love it. Um, I'm a spec guy. I've learned over the years what specs I like in a bow in terms of like axle to axle, um, what holds best for me, that string angle. I've got a long draw, I'm, you know, 30, 30 and a half, depending on the brand and model of the bow. Um, so if I get a short bow, if I shoot a 30 inch bow, that string angle is so steep. I feel like I got to duck to get into the anchor. Right. Or I got to increase the draw length to where I don't duck, but then I have so much face contact with the string that I have, you know, consistency issues. 
with that face pressure. So Okay, so th- I think this makes a really good segue because as I mentioned, one of the things I'm kind of the primary purpose of this trip is to buy a new bow. Yeah. So, and I'm not, I consider myself a very intermediate archer. I've owned one bow my entire life. Hoyt Protofiant 34. Um, yep. And uh, so let's talk about this journey to to a new bow. What are some of the first questions somebody should be asking themselves or some of the first things they should be thinking of when they've they've come to the decision, okay, I'm going to go drop some money on a new bow? Yeah, so that's a good question because um, there are a lot of factors there. Um, I would say if you're a brand new shooter, um, you need to go to a pro shop. If they just measure your wingspan and divide by two and a half, you are probably not going to get the right draw length set. Um, they need to watch you shoot a couple bows and you know, some people like they'll be five, seven, but they have, you know, freaking Bigfoot arms and they have a 30 inch draw. Uh, there's other people like my boss. He's six one. He's my height. He shoots a 27 and a half inch draw. Really short arms. Yeah. Um, we argue he could, he could probably do a little longer, <laughs> okay. but hey, hey, that's where he's comfortable. Sure. So, and I mean, he's been doing it for 40 some years, so who might argue? Um, <laughs> but, um, so draw length and then, you know, what, what your goal is like, yeah, I, I want to bow. Like a lot of people come into it and they're like, I, I might hunt someday, but like, I, I just want to get into it. I want to recreation, recreationally target shoot and, you know, spend time with my family and this and that. Like, I'm not going to put them into, you know, the PSE XF 33 with like one of the most aggressive cams <laughs> that's hard to draw speed demon bow. Um, you know, we're going to start them with something a, a little bit more user-friendly, like a, a Toyota Camry of bows, right, so right. to speak. Um, and then it really comes down to, so draw length plays into a lot of different factors. So if you have, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, uh, if you are 29 inches or longer, a bow that's 32 to 35 inches in axle to axle is going to be more comfortable. And this is based just on what I see. You know, we set up probably, you know, eight to 10 bows a day here. Um, generally speaking, people find that little bit longer bow more comfortable. And that has to do with the string angle. You know, a really short bow, the further you pull that string, the more acute that string angle becomes. Um, And when that happens, that means, you know, instead of being able to keep your head upright and just kind of, you know, come back, put your hand on your face and have that string come right into your nose, you have to put your hand on your face and then kind of move your head into the string. And being comfortable with a bow is way more important than just the, you know, the quality or the make of the bow. Um, so we were talking about boots earlier, and I use this analogy a lot, where it's like there's a lot of really good, high-quality boots on the market, but yeah. some are going to give you blisters and some aren't. 100%. Like we sell Krispies. Krispies give me blisters. That's no knock on the quality of the boot. Yep. There's nothing wrong with the, the boot. Yep. It's just for me, they don't work. I, uh, I almost... Lathrop and Sons threatened to sue me because of something I said about their boots. Oh. And that, like, I'm not, I'm not, well, I did kind of shit on their boots, but definitely <laughs> there's an individual fit thing about boots. Hang on one sec. Yeah. Battery change. Oh, no, 15% for gold. Oh, good. Okay, sorry. Interrupted. Had to check on batteries. Yeah. Uh, so I think bows are kind of the same way. It's like, you know, we get some people to come in and they go, I want the best, most expensive bow on the market. It's like, all right, well, I, I can sell you a $2,000 Hoyt. Yeah. Or, you know, try this 
$1,200 Matthews or this whatever, you know, price price is not the issue. It's, it's more what comes down to what you shoot best and what you're more comfortable with. And the best way to do that is you need to be able to shoot multiple bows. Right. You know, once I figure out your draw length, like tomorrow, yeah. you know, obviously you know your draw length, but you know, tomorrow I'm going to We're going to double check though, because I'm going to be honest. I've never had somebody of your caliber. Sure. It was one of these things. I think the first guy had me like put my hand flat on the wall and then like measured to my nose Corner of the or mouth, something, something like, like that. that. Yep. And I, I think it's 29 and a half, but I'm almost, I'm also six one. So it wouldn't surprise me if yeah. I've been a, a little, little I also find I'm a little, I think maybe I'm a little co more comfortable shoulder when I get fully stretched out, mm -hmm. I feel, and maybe this could be a string angle. I've always felt like I had to lean in to sure. hit my peep. Whereas if I was just a little bit shorter on draw length, like everything just kind of like yeah. sat in there a little bit tighter yeah. and I just felt like a little more comfortable. Yeah. But and anyways, yeah. So it's one thing I'm looking forward to like just double checking and mm -hmm. set some things up and take some shots and be like, yeah, that is what it is. Or no, maybe you could be a little, you know, a half inch longer. Yeah. And you know, if you're going to a pro shop, most pro shops should have a demo of every bow they sell. Right. You know, and if they don't, Maybe find a new pro shop. <laughs> I mean, I know some people are, you know, their hands are kind of tied based on where they live and, and what's it. Dude, I just drove eight hours. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, and I'm not kidding. Like, I, even if I was kind of satisfied with the service of the bow shops in Vancouver, like, there's nothing actually in stock. Right. Like, they don't have demo bows to actually yeah. shoot. Like, it's a very small, and there's a couple shops closer. Like, I've had really good luck. There's this one shop, Riverside Archery in Washington, kind of, it's only like three hours away. So I didn't, ha like, this was a very, you know, this was, it was kind of a bit of a dream mission to come down here and get a bow. But if, but if I could share anything from that, it's like, this is something, if you buy a good bow, I had my last bow for four or five years. I'm yeah. not a guy that feels a need to upgrade. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm definitely worth taking like a, you know, a two day mission to go to some place instead of like being frustrated that I didn't have. Yeah, and you're spending a lot of money. I yeah. mean, bows are not cheap. I mean, yeah. your average setup, you know, if somebody comes in here and they've never shot and they buy any of the flagship bows, I mean, you're, you know, you're pushing 2,000 yeah. pretty quick. You know, if you yeah. need to release arrows, rest sight, loop peep, quiver, you know, the whole nine, like you're, you know, you're making an investment and it really is an investment in yourself because if you just order a bow having never shot it and you don't like it there's no return policy yeah like you, i mean sure you can sell it you know and, and and get something else but you know the best thing you can do is shoot every bow yeah. that that you is possible for you to shoot because you will find that one i guarantee you. it's you know usually the bow picks the person the person doesn't pick the bow it's kind of like buying a dog right um you will draw that one bow back and it's like oh Oh, that felt good. Oh, that pin's just settled right there. Boom. Oh, that broke. You know, it's, you'll find that bow that just fits your shooting style well. Um, and, you know, what we, what we try to do here and, and that I think Wayne has really set himself apart from a lot of other shops is like, we do our best to make sure that when you leave, like that bow is, is set to you in the best way that it can be. Right. right. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of big box stores where they go in, they look at them and say, oh, you're a 28-inch draw. And then their peep height, they have an eight-and-a-half-inch peep height, so their hand's just floating down here. And they just tell them, no, that's what you need. And it's like, like, why? Like, and I, I understand. They don't have the time and, the, you know, the resources, like, train all these guys. They may just not even know how to train them if they did. Um, but, 
you know, it, it, it is such, like we mentioned earlier, it's such a personal, intimate piece of equipment for the individual. Um, and so, you know, if somebody comes in and they're, they're shooting and they're just, you know, gripping the tar out of the, <laughs> their, their front grip and they're, you know, hanging onto the release and punching the trigger, like we work on the equipment, but we also work with them on their, their form to be like, look, right. if you want to get the most out of this, like, here's what we got to change. And we don't just tell them like, Hey, you're doing this wrong. Fix it. You know, we're gentle or soft. <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, there there is a better way to do this. You know, let's just look at this. Like we we have this old Hoyt poster out on the range with like Eric Griggs and Tony Taza and, and Nathan Brooks, um, and it's just it's a great angle because you can see like anchor point, grip, all that, and we reference it all the time. I mean, it's there's so many holes in it now. It's getting hard to see, but um, you know when you can when you can show somebody as well as tell them, like I've always been a very visual learner. Like if I can see somebody yeah, do something, same. like I was saying earlier, you know, taking pictures of guys and putting them on my mirror. Yeah. Um, that has always been so crucial for me to learn. And so a lot of times if somebody's brand new, I'll grab my bow and a release and go out there. And as I'm explaining the steps, I'm, I'm showing them the steps so they can right. see. Cause if you just tell somebody, yeah, come back and slap that string against your face and put the pin in the middle and squeeze the trigger you know they're looking at you like what <laughs> like you want me to put this string on my face it's going to rip my nose off um but uh so yeah you know Wayne I and I lucked out just coming in here having such a knowledgeable guy who's also a perfectionist right um and I think this is one of those sports where it 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 takes that yeah perfectionist attitude to really get results from you know what you're selling um yeah. And I, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of shops where, you know, their, their main goal is just to push product. Yeah. It's like, get them in, get them out. We got the sale. You know, good luck. <laughs> so this is kind of like number one rule. It, it when possible, and if you got to go for a drive, go for a drive. But really finding a good shop is kind of paramount to getting a good, a good fit between yeah. you and a bow. And yeah. you mentioned some of the things that would kind of pop out as red flags mm -hmm. to kind of... And if you can't, if you don't have a good shop around you, um, let's say you go, you get a bow at a shop, um, almost everywhere, like I can't think of a lot of places that well, there's not some sort of league or, you know, like tournaments around. Right. Uh, and I get asked a lot, like, hey, like I'm looking for a coach. Like, do you know anybody? And, you know, you can look at USA Archery and stuff, but a lot of those guys just like read the handbook and get certified and like they, never, they can't shoot a bow. Right. Um, I think the best avenue is like go to these leagues, go to these tournaments, just watch, look who the best shooters are, look at the scores, you know they're all posted, um, and just ask them, hey, right. like I'm new to this, can can you help me out a little bit? Like, can you look at my equipment? Can you look because if because if they're at that level, like they they're past the the pro shop standard, right? You know they they know what they're looking for, they know what you should be looking for, and a lot of them, like I said earlier, with like a lot of pros, they're they're more than willing to help everybody in the sport wants to see the sport evolve yeah. like everybody you know just wants to yell like archery is awesome <laughs> come do it um so just ask them like hey can you look at my equipment like would you mind it you know if i give you 50 bucks for an hour can you can you watch me shoot and and make some recommendations on what i might need to do because you might draw back and they go oh yeah you need an inch of draw length and you're shooting an arrow that's you know three spines too light right. like you know go do these things and i think that's honestly if, if you don't have a good pro shop in your area, look outside of that, you know, try to find somebody who, who does know what they're talking about. And then they might tell you, oh yeah, actually go up to this place. They'll hook you up. 
Yeah. Um, no, that's a good tip. So. That's a good tip. Okay. What else do we need to think of? I guess budget is always going to play a role. So I think it would yeah. also be a good idea to have some kind of idea of what your budget is going into it. Cause I'm sure yeah. that's going to help you as a service provider. Like if it's one of the says, first questions we ask. Yeah, man, I got an upper limit, like whatever. I got to be yeah. all in for under X. Then you're yeah. like, okay, great. Now these are the one or two sites that we're picking from. And these are the one yeah. or two rests that we're picking from. And yeah. um, so I think that would probably be another. Now, how do you feel? Because the the first bow I got, the guy kind of convinced me to go a little bit lighter than I think I would have had he not said anything. Like draw weight wise? Yeah. Mm. And that seems to be kind of common to get a newer shooter. And it's kind of like, I, I agree in guns, you mm. know, like if you've got, you know, a smaller person, you're not going to get them a 300 wind mag. Yeah. Here's a Barrett gonna, 50 cal. Yeah. They're going to shoot <laughs> it three so. times and hate life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I would say like your average adult male that comes in, we start around 50, 55 pounds. Okay. okay. Um, and that's not to say that they can't pull more, yep. but they need to be able to shoot multiple arrows. Yeah. I'm sure they could get 70, 80 pounds back twice. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but that's going to be it. I and, think I forget how hard it was because yeah. I'm used to just pulling 80. Like I don't, and I think too, once you get used to pulling, you, fu- you, you, you learn how to pull. Once you get the mechanics but of it But when down. you actually just try and muscle, like yeah. I've had big dudes try and pull my bow mm-hmm. back and they're like, it's not that they're not strong enough. It's right. that they don't understand the mechanics, the mechanics. Yeah. of how to actually pull it back. Yeah. So we always start low, honestly. And, yeah. And, you know, it's shocking. Guys, will, they'll come in and, you know, we'll set them at like, you know, 52, 53 pounds. Yeah. And then a week and a half later, they're back in. They're like, this is like easy. And we'll bump them up to 62. Yeah. And it's easy. So do you guys start at a higher limb and just take some of it out and then look at potentially upgrading limbs or yeah. switching bows? So, one so to two generally, years like most bows, you know, like let's say just, well, a Hoyt, for example. Yeah. You know, if it's a 70 pound limb, it'll say on the limb 60 to 70 pounds. Okay. You can get that bow down to like 52 safely. Okay. It's not the most efficient at that weight sure, or whatever, but, but that's it's, not the point it's safe either. to shoot. Right. They can shoot it okay. and they can work their way up. Um, you know, Matthews are really cool in the sense where now on that switch weight cam, the module determines the peak weight. Okay. So I can make, I can make any bow of like any of the V3Xs, well, all the way back down to the verdicts. You know, I can make that bow a 75-pound peak weight. I can make it a 70, 65, or 60. And you can, Matthews go up and down really quick with the limb bolts. Like, if I take one turn out of the top and bottom limb, that's five full pounds. Wow. So I can take four turns out and drop that bow 20 pounds. So I can get a 60-pound bow down to 40 pounds, which... And then it's only 60 because of the module. Yeah. So if you wanted to turn it into a 75-pound, yep. you just got to upgrade the, the modules. Yep. So technology is helping a lot with that. Sure. You know, when I, <laughs> when I started... Um, most of the bows had like maybe one inch draw length adjustment. And if you took 10 turns out of it, it'd drop it like eight pounds. Okay. Um, and when I got really into it, you know, I was growing like a weed. I was adolescence. And yeah. so I was going through two bows a year. Unfortunately, you know, my family was able to support that and help with that. But like, you know, now, I mean, those stinking missions, I mean, you can take them from like 19 inches in draw length and 16 pounds up to 30 inches and 70 pounds. Wild. So I mean, a kid can get a bow and he's twelve and shoot it till he's old enough to buy his own. Yeah. <laughs> um, so technology has really helped a lot with that. Um, and there, you know, there's there's a lot of bows out there now that have that that big range. Um, some shoot well, and I mean, in terms of like the way they sh- they feel, they're probably going to feel similar to a lot of people. 
Um, but there's some where like you just you're not going to get it to shoot a straight arrow. Like doesn't matter what you do to the cams or the rest or whatever. It's just it's going to do what it's going to do. You know, right. Mission is awesome. They're they're made by Matthews, so. You know, going back to the car analogy, it's kind of like a Toyota Lexus sort of deal. Right. It's like the mission is your Toyota Camry. It's super reliable, user-friendly, just easy to drive, easy to shoot. Uh, and then the Matthews is like your Lexus sports car. Right. Um, and and I always say you want to buy the best equipment you can afford, yeah. you know. Um, in archery, like a new shooter, if I put them into a Matthews, they're not going to be at a detriment because they have a high-end bow. You know, if anything, it might actually help a little bit. Um, but I understand no, not a lot of people want to walk in to something they've never done and drop 2200 bucks. Yep. on a full setup. It's kind of funny. I've always been the opposite. Like I'm a big, I'm a big um, commitment device guy. And when I get into something new, I've always responded very well to like investing in it heavily mm. because then there's like this psychological commitment. It's like, sure. holy shit, man. I really better learn how to yeah. do this. <laughs> and the secondary factor is, um, and this this goes true for camera gear and hunting gear as well, I find the more expensive stuff retains its value. Yeah. So when you do decide, oh, maybe I still like a $1,500 bow, but I, I want a Hoyt instead of a Matthews, you're going to be able to get out of that more expensive gear. Yeah. And in my experience, most gear is going to be like 70 to 80% value retention, even yeah. after a full season, if you've bought like, you know, Sitka camo or a high-end Sony camera or, sure. you know, crispy boots or like really nice stuff tends to retain its value yeah. a lot more than like the middle of the road stuff. I, I notice like a sharper drop off. Yeah. And, and, and some of that comes into just, you know, the, the overall price, like for example, you know, the, like the mission, we sell it in a kit. The mission switch, it's like 550. Sight, rest, stabilizer, loop, peep, quiver. Um, awesome option for a lot of people that want to get into it. But yeah. two years down the road, when you're looking to upgrade, let's say that's depreciated by 20%. It's like, well, is it really worth selling it for 200 bucks? Yeah. Or should I, you know, just give this to like my stepson and, and just buy the next best thing? Whereas if yeah. you buy like a Matthews, and we got guys that buy new bows every year. Because, you know, they buy, well, for example, last year, like the V331. They bought that. This year, they can trade it in for 800 Yeah. So they're now, only out like 400 bucks. Exactly. And, and, and the, it's like, the site's fine. The, 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 the rest yeah, is fine. All, like all right your over. components yep. are just going to swap right over. Yep. Yep. Unless they do something like yep. uh, like a bridge lock yeah. site system <laughs> oh, or, or a Picatinny rail. That is throwing the, the site companies <laughs> on tilt right now. Like every site company is scrambling like, shit, we need a windage block that will go further right. Yeah. Like the site starts further left. Now it's in the middle. And it was so funny because like last year we had a lot of issues with spot hog sites. You know, when the rest was centered and bow was tuned, like everybody was like, like two inches left. And But that was, you know, you flip the L bracket, micro adjust was all the way over. Like there was... There's nothing you could do about it. So they came out with this bracket. Like Spot Hog's a local company. They're just 20 minutes up the road here. Uh, so we got a pretty good relationship with them. And, you know, Bryce, their machinist, an engineer was in here. And he's like, all right, here's what we're thinking about doing. And this was in, like, November. And, and like, three weeks later, Matthews comes out with his bridge lock. He's like, no, we got no use for these parts. <laughs> he's like, everybody's going to bridge lock. It's like, yeah. So, um, but I think... If you look at the the trend this year, I think, I mean, honestly, 
you know, within the last four years, like there's not a huge jump in technology in terms of the guts of the bow. Right. But it's all these little fit and finish things yeah. that make things nice. Um, you know, having the sight centered and the rest centered doesn't change the balance of the bow a lot, but doing that allows you to run the quiver really close to the bow, which makes a huge difference in the way that bow balances. Right. So, um, that's what you're seeing a lot right now is, you know, it seems like we've kind of, and I'm not an engineer, so, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt, but it seems like we've kind of reached a, a plateau in terms of how fast we can make a bow shoot and still have it be accurate and comfortable to shoot. Right. I mean, the, the technology is there to build a bow that goes 400 feet a second. Look at crossbows. Yeah. But you're, you're just miss fast. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you know? Back to the forgiveness argument yeah. as well. Yeah. I think the faster it goes, the less forgiveness yeah. we have. Generally speaking, that's the so case. This raises an interesting question for a hunting bow because that was one of the things that did uh, one of my decisions to upgrade this year was the two bows I'm interested in, the RX-7 Ultra and the... Um, on the V3X33, both of them were able to reduce their kind of horizontal profile. And mm -hmm. I've always been a front stabilizer, back stabilizer. I'm a heavy bow kind of sure. guy. Yeah. I've tried to go lighter. And Same. It, it, maybe I'm just not, I've always been a bit shaky of a person sure. too. Um, and I just feel, and, and I, don't, I don't mind. I'd rather carry an extra pound yeah. if it means in the heat of the moment, I, I'm, right. I'm going to be a bit steadier. Yep. So I've always run a front bar and a back bar, like a 10-inch and an 8-inch and a couple of plates on each, and I always kick out the back bar at like a pretty decent angle. So two-part question. Obviously, there's a personal element to this, but just as a general rule, what do you like slash recommend for hunting stabilizer setups? And do you think the major brands being able to condense that profile a little bit is going to significantly shift that moving forward. So, uh, yes, is the answer <laughs> to the second one. Um, and we'll get into that. So with hunting stabilizers, you know, for a long, long time, I just ran a 10 inch bar on the front okay. for my hunting bar, yep. for my hunting bow. Um, then I ran a side bracket where that screwed into the stabilizer mount. And then the stabilizer would sit like two or three inches. So I'm left-handed. So the stabilizer sat like three inches to the right of my shelf, which helped offset the weight of the, uh, the quiver. Recently, um, I've always shot a back bar for target stuff. Yeah. Um, and recently, I, like last year, I set up a bow pretty much specifically for the total archery challenge. Okay. And it just shot. It held and shot so good. Where just like you were saying, like I'm happy to sacrifice this extra, you know, 14 ounces for a bow that aims and shoots this well. Yep. And when you have a quiver on there, having that back bar on, you know, traditionally mounted sights and rests and quivers really helps because, you know, if you shoot your bow all year without a quiver, then you throw it on, it's a noticeable difference. Like that bow wants to, it feels top heavy. It wants to tilt to that side. That's it another totally thing I would changes. recommend to people. I actually keep dummy arrows in mind so yeah. I don't have to keep pulling Smart. them out and I wear a hip quiver. Yep. But and I have used older arrows so I can actually keep putting it in and out of my bow case and I'm not worried about beating the shit out of right. the veins. Yep. Um, but I would highly recommend, and I get so anal, I actually load up four. Yeah, because you have one, because on, I'm gonna have one, one on the bow. On the bow. Yep. Um, and that's how I shoot all year. And I think that's a spot. I think some people are missing the boat. I recommend that all the time. Like yeah. people come in, I'm like, yeah, you, you know, generally if you're recreation, recreationally shooting, you're not gonna be, you know, pulling arrows out of your bow quiver because then you're changing the weight every single it, shot. Yeah. But, 
you know, come June, July, throw that quiver on there, yeah. leave it full, still shoot out of your hip quiver and get used to shooting that. Yeah. Um, so the back bar is nice because, you know, like you said, you can kick that out to a point and play with weights and whatever to where when you draw back, like the bow just naturally wants to center. Now for the second part of the question, with these new streamline risers, um, it it is noticeable. Like we, so we have our, our demo set up with the bridge lock site. We have, we run the Hamsky, Hamsky Epsilon rest. Um, just because we're fans of limb driven over cable driven, just so much more reliable. They support the arrow longer. Also, for a demo bow, you um, also don't have to change it for different draw lengths, right? So that's right. a pretty big exactly. advantage. Yeah, because a cable driven, you know, twenty eight versus thirty one. I mean, that rest is you know probably either, either going to get contact or it's going to be pulling on the cable so hard the timing is going to be off. Blah blah blah. Um, but uh, when you put their like low pro quiver on a Matthews on there and you load it with arrows. Like if I take my traverse, which has a tight spot, which for a long time was, you know, for a quiver, that was like as tight as you could get it yep. to the bow with or at least for a single piece detachable quiver. Um, it is very noticeable in terms of how that bow sits. Right. And like I said, it's not just, you know, moving the side a half inch left, you're probably not going to notice that moving you know, the rest, bringing that rest right behind the riser, you might not notice that without a quiver. But then when you put that quiver on and you can suck it in an extra, extra inch and a half or, you know, an inch or whatever, it's insane the leverage that that, that quiver actually has on the balance of your bow. Yeah. And the closer you can get it to the riser, the better balance that bow is going to be. Um, so I think it's, it's not just a gimmick. It is something yeah. that is actually working. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of people going to that a lot of companies moving to that in the next couple of years um and you know it's it's just one of those things that some people are mad like oh i just bought you know i didn't buy the dovetail because i wanted it to be lighter and now they have this bridge lock and i gotta you know i gotta buy a new site and blah 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 but i mean it's not like you have to make the change this year like you know, no it still wait, works wait a little bit. the other way yeah. i've also noticed because i've been looking at to see which sites are available and like let's say you're a black gold guy they've got their dovetails for sale for 100 bucks yeah so you're totally fine you can yep. keep every all the rest of the site is fine you just slap the new dovetail on yep. there you're only out 100 bucks and you're you're off to the races yeah um and you know i think every every big site company right now is you know like black gold their dovetails didn't work at yeah. first and so you know that their engineering department was like, all right, like two of the biggest bow companies on the planet are having this inline thing. We need a pick rail and we need a dovetail that fits. And, yeah. boom, you know, now it's out. Um, you know, Hoyt did the same thing. With the and pick, I heard with they the machine the theirs out. exactly because it's actually an Excel. Like that Matthews yeah, site what is an Excel it. landslide right. dovetail. Yep. Excel makes the, like if you buy the five pin bridge lock site, Excel makes that. Yeah. Because I did hear other dovetails, they they would go in, but they were like a little bit sloppier. Yeah, you and I did hear that down when, the yeah, the set but black screw. gold like apparently yeah, machine theirs like it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're gonna see that a lot. Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, everything's got to progress. Everything's got to evolve. Yeah, you know, there's uh, people go, oh, I don't. All he did was change one little thing and charge two hundred dollars more, and it's like, well, you buy an iPhone every year. Yeah. All they did was add a better camera. So I was just, <laughs> like, who was I speaking thing. to? So I actually work with some tech companies for my day job, and we're having one of these conversations about innovation. And they were like, you don't understand how long it actually takes to implement innovation and get it out to manufacturing. Like, yeah. 
we're not physically capable when you're dealing with like a yearly product release cycle yeah. of getting much more than like a couple single digit percentage points improvements across the board. Wow. Like we're going to pick two or three things, you know, we'll give you a little bit more memory, a little bit more of this and a little bit more yeah. of that, but like that's literally and all then that's market possible. market the shit out of yeah, it. 100%, 100%. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. Which is why most people like I'm a 2-year a phone guy. You know, sure. I've got a professional job, so I like having a nice new phone. Yeah. Um, and it happens to work out the contracts renew yeah. every two years. But I wouldn't go buy. There's not enough difference right. in one year. But I find yeah. every two years, I'm like, oh, that camera is mm-hmm. noticeably better than yeah. the one on my phone. Um, and I find hunting gear the same the same way. Like, I probably wouldn't be. Just because where I live in Vancouver, I think down here you have a strong enough used market that I think if you were that guy, like I lease a truck, I like a new truck sure. every three years. Yeah. Um, and I don't have to worry about anything. I never have to worry about it breaking. I just pay the same lease payment and I drop it off, pick up the new one. Yeah. I could see doing something like that with a bow if I lived in an area, mm-hmm. just suck up the four or 500 bucks yeah. as part of doing business. And I think that point you mentioned earlier that there's a point of diminishing returns. Right. It's just like a, with a lease. If you stick to like a three-year cycle, you're going to do really well. You're never going to get dinged with over mileage. They're always going to, you know, accommodate you. I think the same thing with bows. When you start getting two, three, four years, there's you start losing so much money that yeah. you know it it doesn't make as much sense to keep on that you know quick yeah. refresh cycle. Yeah. If I had a bow, I mean, personally, if I had a bow for, well, my Traverse, for example, that came out in 2019. Um, it was actually a pretty sought after bow for a while because when the VXR came out, a lot of people traded in their Traverse and they're like, "Shit, I want my 33 inch bow back." <laughs> uh, but you know, when the when the V3X 33 came out this year, it's like everything I love about my Traverse plus. Right. Um, and I I could have sold my Traverse and you know made six fifty seven hundred off of it, whatever. But I just kept it as a backup. It was like I've never. It sounds bad, but like I've not. I've never actually had like a true backup bow. Right. I've always just relied. Like, well, this is what I got. If something goes wrong, <laughs> I got an extra set of strings. But if I chip a limb or like, I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff can happen when you're hunting as, as you're well oh, aware. Yeah. I mean, you take one little slip, your bow's on your backpack. It. I created a set of strings of two days like, before leaving for uh, Arizona, I think. For a coos deer hunt. Yeah. And in retrospect, I think I dry fired my bow. I think I was talking to somebody at the range. Yeah. And I think I thought, because he looked at me, this guy, he's like, did you just drive? Because it went like, sound like a cannon. We see it 10 times. Yeah. And he looked at me, he's like, did you just dry fire that? And I'm like, no. (laughs) No, I wouldn't. And then, like, in my mind, I'm like, shit. I I didn't load narrow. (laughs) Yeah. I think I was like talking to him and thought Mm. I loaded it. And then just, dude. Because why else? Like, we we had a guy, so we see that. All the time. Yeah. Uh, and we, it grenaded. Oh, like, yeah. those strings yeah. were, like, shreds. Gone. Yeah. Yeah, we had a guy come in here one time. Just a little story time here. Uh, <laughs> we had a guy come in, and he had waited, like, it was it was a Matthews. It was, a, uh, it was last year's V331. And, I mean, he wanted, you know, this color limb and this riser and, like, custom strings and dampeners and all that, which, by the way, if you're ordering a bow like that, expect to get put to the back of the list in right. Matthew's production line. Yeah. Like, you, they are concerned with getting the pro shops, their programmed orders first, which are going to be standard colors. Yeah. So, instead of four to six weeks, you're going to be, like, 12 to 16 weeks. Anyway, he, uh, so he gets his bow and he's, like, so excited. We get him all tuned up and everything and he's out there shooting and we hear his <laughs> We look out and it's in pieces. Oh! Oh. Limbs and everything are fine. Okay. Strings are busted. 
So, you know, we sell a bunch of good aftermarket strings here. So he's like, oh, I can't believe I did that. So we restring. And this is Saturday. So we are like buried. Like the last thing I want to do is restring a bow for a guy that we just spent two hours setting up. So comes back, put new strings on, goes back out there about 20 minutes later. Did the same thing. You're kidding. Just too busy bullshitting, talking. So we put more new strings on. So now he's like $500 into strings. <laughs> oh. Yeah, because yeah, he bent one of his mods too. So that was a new set of mods. That was 50 bucks. You know, strings are like 168 all set up. Anyway, so like a week later, uh, this guy comes in and he's got his bow. And then he just says, oh, I got my buddy's bow too that needs new strings. And I'm looking at the bow and I'm like, I've recognized that bow. It's like, I've put... I put two sets of strings on that bow. <laughs> and I'm like, is this uh oh, like I say names? I'm like, is this so and so? He goes, uh-huh. He's like, we were at the 3D range and he just He's started, too embarrassed he just, to bring it he in. He just started bolt exactly. Yeah. He, was, he he couldn't show his face yeah, again. Yeah, I'm, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, dude, you need to just keep an arrow loaded on this guy's boat. Like, do it for him. <laughs> Next Wild. Time. But he's just one of those guys where, you know, he gets so like hyped up and amped about talking about this and talking about that that he just forgets to load an arrow. And we yeah. see it. You know, we see it all. It's pretty easy to tell when a bow's been dry fired. And, you know, right. we see it all the time where guys, like, we send a lot of bows to Hawaii because they don't have a pro shop on Maui. So ah. it's like the only leeway we have with being able to ship bows because okay. there's dealer protection rules. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, That's I why I'm down here. Man. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we send a lot of bows there and it never fails. You know, they get the bow, they pull it out of the package, they they don't hook up their release or anything. They just drop back with fingers. And as soon as it breaks over, it slips out of their fingers and they dry fire it. And we always get the call like, I don't know what happened. Yeah. The bow just blew up. And it's like, they they don't just blow up, dude. Yeah. Like, they, I mean, every, I, I've seen one string. So I've been working here for six and a half years now. I've seen one string that on the drawboard actually broke. Um, and it was because somebody put their own speed knocks on and they crimped them way too tight. And it probably. So even then, it's not like right. a, a normal string the, under normal conditions. Exactly. Um, like bows don't just blow up. Even if you don't dry fire it, if you. If somebody just if they're overbowed, so this is why we start people at low poundage, because um, if if you give somebody a bow and they can't pull, they're gonna grip the tar out of that front yeah. front grip, and when they pull, they're gonna twist that grip, and as soon as that cam gets into the let off stage, there's no pressure on that string anymore to keep it in the tracks, and it's just gonna turn right off the top of the cam and just derail. Yeah, and uh, that blew my mind the first time I pulled my bow back on a bow press yeah. and realized how soft. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, now I get why people talk about, like, you could just grab that thing and, like, oh, twist yeah. the hell out of it. And But in your mind, it should be, like, but you're, like you don't in. understand the <laughs> physics that it's like, no, right. now all the pressure yeah. is on those Oh, look the at the track buses. of that cam. Your string, your string's what, maybe an eighth of an inch yeah. in circumference and or in diameter. And that track, like, your string sits level, more or less, with the outside of that cam track. So there's not... You don't, there's not a lot holding it in there. Yeah. We, the best excuse we ever heard was just, just the other day. This guy come in, his, his bow's blown up. And he goes, Yeah. Goes, My old lady, we were having Mexican food and she spilled, she spilled a bunch of salsa on my bow. I went to drop back and it was so slippery, the, the string just derailed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh, no, it's Chinese food. Yeah, she spilled a bunch of Chinese food on my bow and I drew it back and it's so slippery, it just derailed. <laughs> All right, so don't eat Chinese food around your bow, I guess. <laughs> that is too much. Yeah, we hear them all. We hear them all. But okay, I got a couple of I got a couple wrap up questions because yeah. we could go on all night. Uh, I know, and I want to respect your time. Oh, you're good. Um, 
and these come from from a couple followers who wanted me to ask. Yeah. What releases do you like for hunting? So, um, up until this last year, I've always hunted with an index. Okay. Um, I I like personally. So, I like a trigger that has no movement to it before it shoots. Uh, there's a lot of releases that do that. Um, you know, the Spot Hog Wise guys, a really popular one. Personally, I shoot a true ball short and sweet that has the swept back trigger on it. Um, and the reason for that is because I want my hand to be relaxed as possible right. when I shoot. So if you just if you just put your hand up and just relax all your fingers, they're going to hang at not quite a 90-degree angle. I want to be able to insert that trigger. Like if I just could put a trigger in my in my index finger, I want it pretty much in my second knuckle, somewhere between my first and second knuckle. Um, so I like a release that I can shorten up a lot um, and get a good no movement trigger. So I would say my top three would be uh, like the the B3. Um, oh, of course, now I can't remember the name of it. We sell a million of them. It's right they here. make nice stuff, man. It's uh, yeah. So for those that don't know, uh, B3 used to be the, the the Scott releases. So the Scott family. Sold oh. to the outdoor group who owns like Elite Winner's Choice. It's like a conglomerate. Oh, that makes sense. They had a, a three or five year no compete clause, and when that ended, the Scott family started B three. So they're very reminiscent of Scotts. It's called the. Uh, <laughs> I work at a bow shop. I should know this. Um, it's a hook style. It's silver. Uh, sorry, I'm digging through them right here. It's this one. It's the. Um, of course, they don't have it on there. Oh my gosh, I'll I'll text you. <laughs> you I'll put, I'll, it, I'll put it in the show notes, guys. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, um, I like that one. I love the True Ball Short and Sweet, um, and I like the Wise Guy if I'm looking for index um, for a thumb button. I mean, there's a lot of good ones out there. I like adjustability in a thumb button, meaning you know whether I want to run it as a three finger or a four finger, uh, I can adjust the the post length that the thumb barrel is on. Um, so I really like the Stand Perfects. True Ball makes a lot of really good ones. Yeah, I've the got the way. Abyss. Yep. Oh, yeah. One of the tips Great I guys. had, and if you if you are one of these guys who's switching over to like a hinge, I bought the Fulcrum and the Abyss. Yeah. Because they're identical form factors. The Hawk. It's the B3 Hawk. B3 Hawk. Perfect. The Hawk. And uh, this was a tip that Joel gave me because he's like, this way you can practice with your hinge. Yep. And if you're still uncomfortable, you go hunt with your thumb button and none of your anchor points are going to change exactly. because it all fits the same yep. way. So if you're a little bit on the fence, it's an expensive option. Yeah. You know what I mean? You also don't need, those are like $200 releases. I don't know sure. if I would, there's cheaper yeah. thumb buttons and hinges that you line can get up a great with thumb each other. Button, like the, the true ball thing yep. is yep. an awesome one. It's like 116 bucks or something. Yeah. Like super affordable. Um, one thing I will say, if you're trying to go back and forth between an index and a handheld, whether it's a hinge or a thumb button, you're probably you you might get lucky and your peep height will still be good, but generally speaking, you're gonna have to adjust that peep height. So, you know, I get a lot of questions saying, like, oh, when I when I use my index, my draw length feels longer or shorter than when I use my hinge. And it's it's hard to go between the two styles. Yes. Um, even even brand to brand, like the neck on a true ball might be longer than the neck on a B3 or vice versa. Right. Um, you know, in like a handheld thumb button. Um, but I now, there's a lot of people that hunt with hinges now. Um, personally, I have always just had kind of a hang up with, you know, with a hinge, there's kind of that point of no return yep. where it's like, like it's a, 
millisecond from breaking and there's you're not stopping it um where i hunt on the coast here a lot of the time it's it is so thick and a lot of time you're having to stop something in a window and you know with a hinge if i'm pulling through and it takes a step well now i have to restart my whole shot process versus just like taking my finger off the trigger yeah. um so for my personal reasons you know i like i like a trigger that i can control and then kind of going back to what we were saying earlier like I want to believe every animal is going to stand there and let me just settle the pin and pull through the shot. That might not always happen. Yep. Um, and with an index, if I have to just get that pin on and rip a shot off at 25 yards in two and a half seconds, it's going to be more forgiving than with a hinge. I think um, too, what I noticed is once I shot with a hinge for a while and got on top of, you know, call it target panic, talk, call it wherever you want, mm -hmm. you can then go back to like the index and you can do a half a dozen shots and the, yeah. all your mechanics are going to stay sound. Yep. None of those like weird psychological triggers are going right. to settle back in. So you can go get away with it. Now, if you go home and still shoot with that for the next six weeks, I think you're going to find those same undesirable shot characteristics yeah. creep back in. Yeah. But I have noticed that and I've heard that from a, uh, from a few people as well, that if you're practicing with with a tension-based release on a regular basis going out and hunting with a trigger-based release is you, you're not you're not going to need to worry about those bad habits creeping no. in for one or two hunting based shots. no no absolutely not yeah. um and and really i mean shooting a hinge i think is you know it, it teaches you how to let that pin settle on target and and learn what an actual quote surprise shot feels like yeah i don't really like the term surprise shot it might startle you a little bit at first but you you still are controlling the release. And Joel talks about that a lot. Yes. Where it's not just like, oh, there's my pin, like, oh shit, the bow went off. Like, yeah. You know, you're you're controlling what happens to that release. And really, if you if you've really mastered a hinge, which it's that's a hard thing to do. Like I think a lot of people think they're gonna pick it up and, you know, three weeks later they're, you know, this Jedi master with a hinge. Um I can fire my hinge really quickly and still have it be a clean shot, yeah. or I can sit there and let the pin settle, you know, like in, in a target situation and, you know, take my time and, and really just, you know, let the thing just roll slow till it breaks. Right. Or I can get on it and go, okay, it needs to go now, tonk, and then the shot breaks. Yeah. Um, and I think learning how to shoot that well, you know, you can shoot your index trigger better. You'll shoot a thumb button better. I pretty much shoot a thumb button and a hinge almost the exact same way. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. Well, and even the way I shoot my thumb button is the same way I shoot my hinge. I try and kind of lock the thumb, yeah, and kind of roll back and like almost push that thumb button. Yeah, you, it, the handle, the handle pushes into the thumb rather than the thumb pushing into the right, handle. Right. Um, and I find I just had a real mental block with back tension on an like I understand psychologically what's supposed to happen yeah. when you fire an index with back tension. Yeah. I just had a very like my hand just claws up. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'll be pull, 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 and then nothing's happening. And I have to squeeze that. Yeah. So for me, whereas like I can roll that thumb button into my thumb, yeah. I find that particular action not very difficult for me. I, I squeeze my finger with an index. Yeah. I load my back and I maintain that back tension for aiming purposes, but I, I squeeze, I build pressure with my finger. I basically start hugging that trigger with my right. finger while maintaining that back tension until the shot breaks. If I just try to pull... I just pull my front arm all around. Yeah, I, I couldn't. You know? I couldn't do it. I know yeah. there's people who can, but you know they mm -hmm. say you know let it kind of slide in your wrist, and I just couldn't. I just yeah. couldn't get it done. Yeah, it's a whole thing. <laughs> um, okay, last question. Mm -hmm. um, bow presses for like the at home 
enthusiast. I mean, I'm kind of biased because you've heard my story, but A, what are your thoughts? And B, some actual recommendations. Like, is it is it worth... His specific question was, you know, is it worth getting a really expensive at-home press? And I'm kind of like, even the cheap presses aren't Are cheap, cheap, right? Yeah. Like... So easy press, um, last chance archery makes them. You know, if you're working on your own stuff at home, I just recommend the hand crank. I think you can get them brand new for like, I don't know, like three ninety nine. Yeah. Um, the easy it, green, right? That's yeah, the, the one I've green. got. Yep. Um, there's one right behind us, right there. Yeah. And you know, if you're working on one bow, pretty consistently, you don't need like we use the power presses in the shop here because we're doing a bow that's twenty eight inches in axle to axle, and then one that's thirty six, and like it's nice to not have to. Your arm's going to go dead if you got to crank it that much every day. Yeah. Uh, so we use the power. But if you're working at home, it's it's not. This is a great hack here. For yeah. Those listening, so the gear they've got a, they've got a drill yeah. mounted to the power. I'm like, that's that's a good idea. Oh, slick to it. It moves it quick. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. I love it. It's got to keep extra batteries on hand. Um, but yeah, I mean, last chance is great. You, know, you can adjust the arms for different limb angles. If you're working on a bow like the Defiant, where the limbs are so far past parallel, yeah. um, they do make these. Yeah, I know you guys can't see it, but uh, that's what choked me up, man. Arms. And those are like, I think they're 250 bucks. Like they're <sighs> really expensive. And I'm like, yeah. of course, I own the one bow on the market need that with beyond parallel limbs, so that I have to get these. Yeah, uh, you know, additional attachments. Yeah, there's. I mean, I know Dudley really likes like the X Press. Um, I haven't personally messed around with it a whole lot other than just at vegas they have a booth okay. um and i've you know played with it and it it does its job really well but it's going to take you again if it's your own bow it'll be set and you're good you know if you're doing multiple bows like if you're working on your buddies and this and that you know it's going to take you an extra i don't know minute minute and a half maybe to get everything set up yeah um those are the two that i see the most of and uh yeah i think you know, it, it's definitely worth it um, if if you are a long way from a pro shop and you have some resources to kind of teach you how to work on your bow. It's fun to be able to tinker with things at home. I've seen, I know a couple guys in northern BC towns yeah. that'll like chip in on one and yeah. leave it in one guy's garage. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, Because you can even do stuff like, all you could go in on a few things, you know, and get a chronograph and uh, maybe even an aero saw and like just yeah. set up like one little hobby shop for yeah. you all. And I think if you're in a remote location, I think that's a great idea. Because if yeah. four guys went, you know, three, four hundred bucks a piece, mm -hmm. you could get like pretty well oh, set up to easy. work to work on your uh, own stuff. Not to do like a, a plug, but I think like two, three weeks ago, we made a video Um one of our the, customers, the archery Terry. shop. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a twelve by sixteen shed. Yeah, you don't need a building code or permit for it. If it at least in Eugene, if it's you know under two hundred square feet, um, and it's literally like I could I could take a bow out of a box and set it up at this guy's shop, and he did a really good job of you know a lot of the tools and stuff like you know Allen wrenches and pliers and this and that. Like you can buy them from Easton and they'll be really expensive, or you can go to like Harbor Freight and get them for you know half um and you can find a lot of stuff online too because because yep and there's <laughs> there's a list on instagram of everything he made a list of everything in his shop and he put what it is like retail um but he got a lot of that stuff for like half or less from guys that thought they were gonna work on their own stuff and then never touched it so. i just ordered an aero socks it was like one of the last and a chronograph because it was one of the last two pieces and yeah. i actually took a screenshot of that list from yeah. your instagram because i was like ordering a last 
and it's great. Like yeah. you don't even need. He's got like doubles and triples of a few things yeah. on there. Like you don't even need everything on there. Right. But if you want something to just jog your memory, yeah. like it's it's yeah, awesome. It's good. Yeah, yeah. He Terry's awesome. He uh, he's mine would not be as well organized as his. His is like every every box has a box and <laughs> it was a beautiful shop yeah i was for, like i need to up my game it. it's like oh, a little bit yeah uh, but yeah he, he did a really good job a little with paper it. tuning section yeah and he's everything. got it all yeah he's he's i have to flip i have a stool that i flip upside down and i duct tape the paper to like the bottom <laughs> of yeah. the stool legs and shoot <laughs> yeah. but like through the stool the <laughs> yeah yeah but i was like hey it works yeah. it works uh, that's good um all right, man. Any any closing thoughts? I'm gonna put your links, the bow racks links, all that kind of stuff in the show notes below. But anything you want to say before we sign off? Um, yeah, I would say you know if if you're new to archery, which you know with our with the Inside Out Precision Channel, we've we've learned over the last couple of years that most of our subscriber base is either newer shooters or guys that have been shooting for a long time but never took it seriously, and now they're diving in. Uh, don't don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, you know, there's there's nothing worse than than being interested in something and asking somebody and having them, you know, talk to you like you're an idiot. <laughs> um, you don't know what you don't know. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to reach out, whether it's to me or, or anybody else. Um, and you know, you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna progress and you're not gonna learn. Everybody had to learn at some point. There was a day where I knew nothing about archery. Um, so you know, I guess yeah. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, keep keep that fire burning it's like i mentioned earlier it's the one thing that like it's an itch you just keep scratching you can't i'm not sure there's such a thing as perfection in archery i'm not sure there's such a thing as perfection period but especially in archery you know there's there's always something to learn there's always something to get better at i certainly don't know everything um i'm always you know open ears open eyes when i go to these different shoots and there's people that have been doing this a lot longer than me and know no more than me um and hopefully I can learn from them like you might learn from me or, or other, you know, channels and, and people out there. And uh, that's how we evolve the sport. Love it. Yeah. All right, guys, there you go. Um, do me a favor. Um, engage with the platform any way you can. Like, comment, share, subscribe. It's always greatly appreciated. And as always, thanks for tuning in.